it's so good to be with you guys. We are, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we are powering our way through Philippians. And I don't know how you found it, but um, I found it emotionally exhausting. It is so tiring. Every week there is another whole load of emotions just plowed in there as Paul, who is like in prison, loves Jesus, loves these people, is wrestling with grace and like despair. And it's just an emotional roller coaster. But wonderfully, we have a God who, who meets our real life. We don't have a God who is um, maybe overly formal and unable to connect with the real us in real lives. We have a God who, who deals with real life situations. And what, what, what I love about the, the next 11 verses that we're going to go through is that Paul is dealing with some quite difficult people. He's dealing with people who uh, look very much like Christians, but have fundamentally um, distorted the gospel message. And um, I was just thinking, oh man, what example can I use for that this week? And then uh, one of my friends from work um, uh, said, hey, oh, you're a Christian. Have you heard this week of this story of this televangelist guy? And I was like, oh, right, yeah. You you know where this is going. This conversation is already going. Well, this televangelist um, guy who has been crowdsourcing he's been asking the public for his private jet for 54 million dollar private jet and not any private jet this is his fourth private jet because apparently the first three just aren't enough and he was asking me because this televangelist says he's a christian he says he loves jesus he talks about the bible he talks about living in faith these are all things that I do. And for a moment at work, I'd, I'd torn myself out of something, whatever I was doing, and suddenly had to deal with this like, quite awkward situation. Because the reality is, from someone's point of view, I could look very much like this televangelist. I believe some similar things. And what I was reminded of, again, in that moment, is that we have to watch so carefully what we believe. Why do we believe what we believe? Why... Do we do this whole church thing? Because the reality is, a guy like that is not too many changes away from us. It's quite subtle. It's some of the wording. It's the way the gospel's presented. And before you know it, you're, uh, you know, like prosperity gospel guy. Or, you know, you talk to Mormons. And I had some good friends when I was growing up who were Mormons. I actually lived with Mormons for a month. That's a different story. Another time, another time. Um, and uh, they, they look and they sound quite similar to Christians. And they're like, what? You, it sounds like you believe quite similar things. And particularly then in our postmodern world, right, where we have pluralism, which is generally a really, really good thing. It says, hey, if you believe different things, you are welcome, you're accepted, you are, you know, please come, you're so welcome um, in our society. But it can lead a little bit further, where it starts to say not only are all beliefs welcome, all beliefs they don't really differ that much. They're all fundamentally the same. How many times have you heard that? What everyone believes, it's kind of the same thing. And, and I think sometimes as Christians, we can be lulled into this false sense of what we believe doesn't really matter. The differences, the nuances, they don't really matter. Uh, and I think Paul this week would remind us, oh, they really, really do. They really, really do. Particularly when these differences start to undermine or pull out the guts of the gospel. We are in very serious territory. We have been proclaiming tonight, singing tonight about this wonderful victory that God has won us. 
And it is so important that we know why we believe in this victory. And Paul uh, tonight is going to unpack some of it. Well, he's not literally here tonight, but the stuff he's written about, we're going to unpack tonight. I'll get my verbs right. So we're going to go through uh, Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11. It'll come up on the screen behind me. Feel free to read along. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Lord God, we thank you that your good news is genuine good news. You have, as it was brought in so many of those songs, you have conquered death. You have brought us wonderful new life. Lord God, I I pray as as we figure out how do we deal with the different beliefs in this world, how do we how do we figure out what we believe ourselves? Jesus, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us soft hearts? God, we, we need you. We need you to guide us and lead us and mold us and change us so that we would be more like Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. So, it's no surprise. Guess what theme Paul begins with in Philippians? It's joy. And like for the 50th time, literally, he mentions joy 15 times in Philippians. He begins with joy. He says this, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And he knows he's going on about this a lot because he then says, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Here's what he's saying. You really, really need this. This is not like a passing thing. Oh, be joyful. This is such a significant thing that we need to know and experience. We're going to talk a little bit about what the gospel looks like and what legalism looks like in a moment. But one of the telltale signs is joy. Do you experience real meaningful joy? And I don't mean happiness, right? Happiness is like a a frothy overflow of emotions that happens depending upon whether we had a good sleep last night, whether we feel good, whether work was fun, things like that. I do not mean happiness. Joy is something significant and meaningful that lives with us whatever season we go through. If we understand the gospel, joy erupts in our heart, okay? And it's so important. And, and he's going to start to talk about what, you know, some really dangerous paths we can go on, and joy is one of the first things to go. If we're following legalism, if we're missing the gospel, joy is one of the first things to go. And so are we encouraging each other in this? Are we asking each other, what, you don't, you're struggling with joy at the moment. Are you okay? Can I pray for you? Is there something that's getting to you? Is there something that's digging into you and stealing joy? Because 
Paul not only talks about joy, he also talks about joy thieves. He says this in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, that's a, a few weird things to say. I'll be honest. Let's try and unpack some of that for those of you who aren't Hebrew, right? Um, f- first of all, whenever um, Paul or anyone in the Bible repeats something three times, pay attention. It just means it's super, super important, and he's highlighting its significance. And then he uses a few um, things that we should be looking out for. First of all, dogs. What, what, why should I look out for dogs? Is there, is there a dog crisis? Is there a, a plague of dogs going on? Why should I pay attention to these dogs? Now, to, to help us understand what um, ancient Hebrew Israelite uh, dogs were like, dogs in those times were not the, the cute, adorable things we find in our homes. They were the vultures of society. They were the things full of disease um, that you would not go near them. Um, and they uh, lived off rubbish and all kinds of uh, junk. And they were considered not only physically unclean, but an unclean animal that you wouldn't go anywhere near and so to call someone a dog was one of the most offensive things you could use and so when Paul calls these Jewish Christians these Christians who are taking on Jewish customs he calls them dogs that's one of the most offensive things he could use he's being super super serious and we'll unpack why in a little moment he says also look out for the evildoers now this is crazy as we will begin to unpack these are guys who are not just righteous, they are super righteous. They are doing everything possible to, on the outside, appear so righteous. And yet he's saying, look out for the evildoers. He's immediately making a statement about the stuff that we do. Legalism is adding to or trying to replace what God has done for us. And he says, they're evildoers. We'll touch more on that later on. The next bit he says is, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In case it isn't clear, talk about circumcision. I know we don't talk about circumcision loads. I know we don't think about circumcision that much. But he's essentially saying, hey, those who are Christians who are choosing to then get circumcised, watch out for them. And we're going to unpack more and more about what this legalism uh, looks like. Paul is saying this is not noble. This is not enviable. It's offensive and useless. It's offensive and useless. So first of all, um, joy and joy thieves. Second of all, we look uh, that Paul starts to unpack what terrible investments he has made. He starts to talk about the way he used to be. He talks about, hey, if anyone's got confidence for the flesh, I have. What he's talking about, if anyone has done a really awesome job of trying to please God with his works, it would be Paul. It would be Paul working super, super hard. And what we see is that he lists all of these different things. He says that he was um, circumcised on the eighth day. And I'll explain this a little bit. Circumcision was a picture of God's covenant with us. It was something that was commanded in the Old Testament so that you were set apart. You were set aside for God's purposes. On the eighth day was an important, significant day um, when babies were circumcised. It's, uh, it's, what he's essentially saying is from birth. I have been righteous. This wasn't just a thing I picked up in my teens or got really into like Judaism. From birth, I have been doing this thing. This is a whole lifetime commitment that I have made. He talks about how he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, For those of you who who know your Genesis, um, Benjamin was the son of Jacob's favorite wife. And... um, these lineages in the Old Testament are really important because they show they are pictures of the favor of God. 
It says, hey, not only was I born correctly, my whole lineage was correct. Everything about me is correct. And I know we can look at this, these, you know, Hebrews, and laugh at them a little bit. You guys and your lineages, what are you like? But the reality is our culture also sees lineages important as well. We would not have race issues today if lineage was not important. And the reality is he's referring to a similar thing back then, where certain people born in certain lines had a certain special status in all of society. And finally, he says that um, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Pharisees were known for keeping the law, but not just the law, but for adding on a whole bunch of extra laws to show abundantly to all on display that they were righteous and holy. They take what God had commanded them to do and then add on some stuff. Hey, we are so holy, we've run out of laws to keep. We've run out of laws to keep. We've had to add on extra laws just to demonstrate how incredibly, outrageously holy we are. And Paul says, hey, I nailed all of them. I nailed all of them. But what does he then say? Indeed, I count everything as loss. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, he says in verse 7. Whatever gain, whatever I had earned, whatever as a Jew and a Pharisee and a son of the line of Benjamin I had gained, I count it completely as loss. Okay, some of you are interested in finance. vast majority of you aren't. Hang in there. And we just a financial illustration. I'm just warning you here so you can emotionally prepare yourself. I know some of you, you've chosen drama. And th- this clearly is not your world. This is like you struggle to budget on your own. And I'm about to use a financial illustration and maybe lose you. But this is the only one I've got. So we're going to hang in there. You're going to stay with me. It's going to be okay. All right. So way back in 2007, some of you might not have been alive, but way back in 2007, we had this thing called a financial crisis. Banks exploded, houses, you know, like had to be repossessed. It was crazy. It was a difficult time. Loads of people lost their jobs. And one of the contributors towards this was this thing called a toxic asset. A toxic asset. And what this was, was basically an investment that someone had made that ended up Um, so much significantly um, less valuable than what it was in the first place that it was basically a write-off. It was basically worthless. And it meant that the people who had invested in these things that had become toxic assets basically um, had lost loads, had lost tons of money. They were hoping to make money on it. They were hoping to make a profit on this, but ended up losing out from it. And I think this is a helpful picture of what, Paul um, has when he says he looks at everything he used to have. He, he spent his entire life investing in, and he now calls it loss. Another way of translating that is damage. And he said, whatever gain I had, I counted as damage. Not only is it not valuable to me anymore, it's actually a weight on me. It's a burden on me. It hasn't helped me as it promised to help me. Let's unpack sin a little bit here, and then we'll unpack legalism a bit more. Sin, Proverbs talks about, is something that promises happiness, wealth, prosperity, joy, peace. Sin promises, hey, I know God's promised you all of these things. I know Jesus said he gives you life and life to the full. But hey, you want this sin. It's so good. It's going to give you joy. It's going to give you comfort. It's going to give you the hope you want. It's going to deal with that shame. It's going to make all the difficult things in your life just go away. But for those of us who have walked in sin at one stage or another, we know it doesn't fulfill. It doesn't return what you invest in it. It just takes. And 
Sin is a little bit like an addiction. What addiction does is when you first try something for the first time, it's amazing. What addicts will typically say is no hit of whatever drug you take is as good as that first hit you ever have. And sin is a similar thing. It promises the world, but only takes from you. Um, The Bible says that sin ultimately leads to death. It takes from you, takes from you, takes from you as much as it can get. And this is uh, particularly true with legalism. Legalism is saying, hey, you don't have to trust in God. You don't have to trust in God for your hope, your joy, your security, your comfort. Hey, you can get it for yourself. If you do these things, you will look great to God and you will look great to other people. You can for yourself take the steering wheel. You can for, um, for, you can for yourself become that holy and righteous person. You can for yourself put yourself above other people. It is choosing um, to try and gain all of the things that only God promises. Legalism is a lie, and it is built on a lie. Ultimately, it's built on sin. And Jesus calls us from our legalism and sin because legalism promises life, but really gives a terrible burden that crushes. In to um, contrast that, Jesus says this, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Instead, he calls us to throw away our toxic assets, to throw away the legalism, to throw away our efforts to, to impress God, our efforts to impress other people, and say, no, 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 I trust in Jesus' finished work. I trust in his righteousness. I trust in what he's accomplished on that cross So when God looks at me, he doesn't see the past me. He doesn't see the bits that I regret. He doesn't see the things I'm ashamed of. He doesn't see my guilt. He doesn't see all of my sin. He doesn't see my death. He sees Jesus and his resurrected life. And in that, I have hope. In that, I have joy. In that, I have a meaningful reward that I never invested in in the first place. And this leads me to number three, the jackpot. Paul says that despite not having all of the impressive effort and piety of the Jews, that we, that's Christians, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 9, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. When we become Christians, here's what we're saying. God, everything I've done with my life isn't enough. It's not enough. You have um, called from every person a standard of perfection, and all of us have fallen short of that. All of us have fallen short on that. And the reality is, we know that. We know that because there is a conscience in each and every one of us that when we screw stuff up, we feel bad about it. When we sin against people, we feel bad about that. When we see sin happen afar in someone else's life, we feel this sense of injustice. And there is an injustice in our life. And Jesus has chosen to, without us deserving any of it, take the burden of our sin. And more than that, he has chosen to give us eternal life. He has given us the olive branch. He has given us a chance of hope and restoration that we never earned for ourselves. 
And so the biggest middle finger to stick up at God is to say, hey, God, I got this one. (laughs) I know you went to the cross and died for all of my sin, but hey, I've got this one. I know you take all of my shame away, but I really feel I need to do all this extra work to, to, to like cleanse myself of all of this sin. I mean, I know you said you'd, you know, you'd comfort me for, for, for eternity, but I kind of need to go and commit this sin because I really need this comfort. And that's something I need. I know you promised all of that, but I can do this for myself. Legalism said what, says what God has done is not enough. And what Paul says instead that we have hit the jackpot. He talks about this um, circumcision. We are the circumcision. I know none of us really chant that these days, do we? <laughs> I am the circumcision. That doesn't really ring true because there's a bit of a culture divide that we kind of have to explain first. Circumcision, circumcision means this, I belong. I belong and I'm known. You ever feel lonely? You ever feel rejected by this world? You ever feel isolated or abandoned? Circumcis- circumcision said, I belong to Jesus. I'm totally his. And what Paul's saying is we're no, longer, um, uh, we're no longer picked out by God through circumcision. We now have the Holy Spirit. We now have the Holy Spirit living in us. It's not just a, a, a mere symbol on us anymore. We get God living with us. This continues to blow my mind. This is crazy that God would say, I'm not only going to die for you, I'm then also going to send my comforter to be your friend and to live with you, to empower you to live the life that Jesus lived, to fill you with hope and joy that you will never be alone. That's what we get with the Holy Spirit. So that's why Paul can say, hey, we are the circumcision. Screw all of your, these things you do into babies at eight days. We get the Holy Spirit. This is so much better. And all the men said, amen. It's a good thing. So we are the better circumcision. He, um, we are, when you look at what the Jews were saying, hey, you need to be born of the right, um, of the right lineage, of the right place. Our birth line um, to Jacob it's not, sorry, oh, let me start this all again. I basically just got stuck in some notes and then realized I was in the wrong place. I'm going to start this again. It's not our birth line to Jacob that guarantees God's favor to us, but by our adoption through Jesus, that we are called firstborn and heirs. We have this amazing title. None of the Jews could say that. None of the Jews could say, I'm a firstborn of God in Jesus. If we trust in him today, we can say that. I'm loved and known by God. It's incredible. And finally, it's not our works and our zeal that justifies, but Jesus' perfect obedience, even to death, that has been credited to us. Sometimes, I'll be honest, I don't feel like I match the overwhelming love that God has poured out into me. I don't feel like my response is really, um, really matches his love for me. I feel regularly, hey, maybe it's just me, I feel like a, a letdown sometimes. I feel like I let God down, and I feel like I let people down. And legalism follows me like a burden, like a ball and chain dragging along after me. Legalism stalks me. And maybe it's just me, but I don't think it is. The reality is the enemy comes to us, and the, the enemy is one who hates the fact that you have accepted Jesus. And he will do everything he can to make you forget about it to make you forget the fact that Jesus accomplished everything on the cross. And this ball and chain that you're dragging along behind you saying, oh God, I've just failed again. I've not done what you commanded me to do again. He says, no, it's finished. 
When I finish that work on the cross, I accomplished everything for you. You have everything in Christ. Everything. That means we no longer need to feel any shame. No longer need to feel any guilt. And what's wonderful is the times that we do, we know that doesn't belong in me at all. There is no justification for that shame living in my life. Are we outraged? Are we outraged when there's shame in my life? That, that doesn't belong there anymore. I'm in Jesus. What, why is this shame here? It doesn't even, on what? Like all of my works have been separated from me. All of my sin has been separated as far as the east is from the west. Right? We heard that earlier on. Why am I shameful? Shameful of what? Jesus? I can't be shameful of Jesus. He's perfect. He's accomplished everything. I have no reason to be ashamed. This morning, I wasn't very pleased with how I preached. I don't think I did a very good job. I was unhappy with some bits of it. Everyone seemed happy with it, but I wasn't happy with it. And I felt this sense of guilt and, oh man, I didn't serve these guys properly and I've not taken Jesus' amazing word and applied it. I'm like, I literally just preached on this. There is no reason for shame. Jesus has set me free. And friends lies, they like creep underneath our skin and they get in at just the moments when we're not expecting them. Is this gospel really in us? Really changing our life? Really in those quiet moments, setting us free again and again? It's not just here on a Sunday evening when we're experiencing the wonderful victory of Jesus. It's the everyday. That's what living with Jesus looks like. And I need this, and I'm excited about this. And you're welcome to join me and be excited about it. But either way, Jesus has set us free. We have hit the jackpot in Christ. Finally, verse 10 to 11, uh, we have a new story. Paul says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. From God's perspective, there is no single other truth that really matters for the rest of our lives. Whether you pass your degree or fail it, whether you get that dream job or don't, whether you marry someone or don't, the reality is no other truth matters in your life apart from, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And Paul says this with confidence, punching right on the nose all of the things that we love and value and get meaning and joy out of this world and says, some of them are great, but none of them are as good as knowing Jesus. so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul helps us to put our eyes on the resurrection. That's the end time when Jesus comes back. And he says, my hope isn't on this world. My hope isn't on what happens within this world. My hope is on a future hope. My hope is what Jesus has guaranteed. That bit I shared earlier on, and we sang a few things about it as well, where death has lost its sting. Friends, most people in this world, including other religions, look at death with a real fear. Um, many, you know, if you're not a Christian, it's obviously the unknown. For Muslims, um, they will work and work and work. And there are a whole bunch of pillars of faith and a whole bunch of other things you've got to do as well. And even then, and I asked my good Muslim friend, you know, what, um, so do you know you're going to heaven? And he's like, I've got hope. Seriously, that's it? You don't know for certain that you're going to heaven? Like with any other religion, you will look at death and there's always going to be some fear there. There's always going to be some uncertainty. But friends, not for us. 
We look on our crucified and risen saviour and know there is hope for me. I don't need to be afraid of tomorrow. I don't need to be afraid of death. I have a one who went before me and overcame the grave. And this is why we, like Paul, can look to that day and say, I have the most amazing, incredible hope in Jesus. And this means that we can even do the crazy things that Paul did. He isn't afraid of death. He isn't afraid of what can happen in this world. So he's willing to suffer. Something we don't like talking about. None of you came today thinking like, yes, I really hope we're going to talk about suffering today. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about suffering. But Paul, he faced all of this suffering. And and you've been through Philippians, so you know this. I don't need to repeat it again. But he went through suffering and he rejoiced. He rejoiced. He said, in all of this, I know I have an amazing hope in Jesus. I know him with me today. He is beside me. I am not alone. And I have a hope beyond the grave. Every suffering in this world is temporary. It's not going to last. We know wonderfully that all of the worries, all of the concerns we have today, they, they are temporary. They're not going to last. They might not even last next week. But the reality is they fill our mind and we worry and we stress and we strive and we work so hard and we panic and we don't sleep sometimes. And the reality is God is saying, I've got this. I've got this. And life may not be easy, but it will all be worth it because I will welcome you home, good and faithful servant. And friends, it means whatever season of life we're in, there is an amazing hope in knowing and following Jesus. So all of this truth, what does it mean? All of the things that we've heard from Paul tonight, how differently would we live if our eyes were fixed on eternity? We are promised an eternity living with Jesus and an eternity living for him. Sometimes legalism takes a root in our life because we are so concerned about the today. We are so concerned about the now. We are so concerned about how we are perceived by other people. So we work and work and work. So we try and do these extra things instead of saying, God, you've loved me. You've loved me. You know me. You care about me. I'm okay. I don't have to worry. I don't have to strife anymore. Grace is this wonderful gift that we did nothing to earn and we can't pay back. And grace, the funny thing with grace is it's like, it's super, super simple, but it's really difficult to apply. And you kind of have to go back to it again. And you have this funny wrestle with devotions. And I always find this such an odd paradox because devotions you're supposed to do all the time and they're really important to do, but you shouldn't do it out of legalism. And, and it's just like the why... So I found I do it for this reason. I know I have to do something. I have to spend time with Jesus. I have to go pray. And then when I meet with God, I'm reminded of grace. And I remember, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do anything. I need to be reminded, but at the end of the day, whether I achieve in this life or not, whether I look great in this life or not, none of it really matters. Jesus has loved me. Jesus has pursued me. And out of that, out of that affirmation, out of that wonderful, joyful thankfulness to God, I'm going to do some stuff. I'm going to take an action. I'm going to take a next step. And my question to you guys would be, what's your next step going to be? What's your next step going to be? Where are you in your walk with God? Where are you in following him and trusting him and walking with him? And the reality is we're all unfinished works. So, I mean, unless Jesus is amongst us, well, I mean, I don't know he is, but if Jesus is literally right here, he is a finished work. Apart from Jesus, we are all, finished, we are all unfinished works. What is your next step going to be?